Welcome to The Institute, a podcast in the lives and works of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm your host, Kristen Chavez. Today, I'm speaking with historian Catherine Turk, an associate professor in the History Department and adjunct associate professor in the Women's and Gender Studies Department. Her research focuses on women, gender, and sexuality, law, labor, and social movements, and the modern United States. These themes are present both in the courses that she teaches and her publications. Her first book, Equality on Trial, Gender and Rights in the Modern American Workplace, examines how sex equality law remade the world of work, eroding some inequalities and affirming others. Her most recent book, The Women of Now, How Feminists Built an Organization That Transformed America, is the subject of our discussion today. In spring 2021, Turk was a Hyde Fellow in the IEH's Faculty Fellowship Program, where she continued her research on the National Organization for Women, which became this book. She was also the recipient of a National Endowment for the Humanities Summer Stipend in 2017 and the Schwab Academic Excellence Award in 2002. In 2023, she also received the Tanner Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching at UNC. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm glad to have you. You share this in the prologue of your book, but can you talk about how you first learned about the National Organization for Women and why you wanted to research it further? Yes, I do um, couch the opening of this book in terms of my personal encounters with the organization, which I hope uh, readers will find uh, enticing and it will pique their curiosity. Uh, I first came across now about 20 years ago as an undergraduate in search of a topic for my honors thesis at Northwestern University. I was broadly interested in American history, women's history, the histories of activism, and the history of Chicago, which is my hometown and also the city where I was in college. My advisor at the time pointed me to the archives of the local chapter of the National Organization for Women as um an important but generally overlooked uh, local group that historians might be able to say much more about if they dug in. So I started to do that. I began to examine NOW's records in the Chicago area as well as the records of other uh, groups that were working around uh, feminist issues at this time. And I learned a lot about grassroots strategies to advance women's rights um, in this the heyday of feminism of, that was the 1970s. And I was especially focused on um, their work around uh, labor and workplace rights, which was a key focus of the Chicago chapter of now. Um, th- this was a really vital era in the efforts to get federal authorities to enforce uh, new sex equality laws, but also also to have those laws enforced uh, strongly with um, with a robust definition of what um, what discrimination was and um, in pursuit of equity. I was also preparing to enter the workforce myself, a, co- a college senior, um, and so I was interested in questions about work, uh, broadly aware that things were better for working women than they had been when my mother and certainly my grandmother entered the workforce, but um, certainly had a general sense that there was more, more to be done. So I was interested in how uh, women in the past had thought about workplace rights and how they had uh, creatively approached the their efforts to to strengthen them. The, and the more that I learned about now, the more fascinated I became because I saw women uh, like me, women who were in college or recent college graduates, women from ordinary backgrounds, women from the same town where I grew up, women from nearby who uh, saw problems around them and took practical approaches to solving them. And I found it really inspiring. And I got to meet some of them too, which was a lot of fun and really moving. 
That's great. It really resonated on a personal level, like so early on. That's awesome. Your book focuses on three women, Eileen Hernandez, Mary Jean Collins, and Patricia Hill Burnett. Can you briefly share a little bit about each and why you decided to focus on them rather than other members or other leaders of now? Mm -hmm, Definitely. Uh, Let me back into that question a little bit. So um, my earliest research about now, which formed the basis of my college thesis, uh, I ended up uh, folding into my graduate school dissertation, which was a study that became a book about uh, creative approaches to workplace rights uh, starting in the 1960s all the way up to the present. And now was part of that book, too. But as I worked on this question and worked on this big project, I realized that what I really wanted to be able to do was to consult a history of now, that there was a general sense among historians that this was a really important organization, that even um, for women who dissented from now and formed other groups or they were not active in the feminist movement in the 1970s at all, that now was nonetheless a prominent institution on the feminist landscape. But no one had done the work of telling now's history. Scholars instead would dip into pieces of it. They would study individual chapters or uh, compare a couple of chapters or um, write biographies of the leaders. Uh, We know a lot about Betty Friedan, for example, some of the, the founders and leaders of now. But what I really wanted was to be able to read a history of the organization. And since that book didn't exist, I thought, well, I'll just write it myself. Um, so that's what I set out to do when my first book uh, was was headed to press uh, in the early 2010s. So I headed to the archive in the Boston area. Now's records are all over the country, but their main repository is at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard University. And just thought, well, I'll start from the beginning and uh, look at the records from the founding and move forward. And even in that several weeks long research trip, I started to understand that that would be a project that would take many lifetimes to accomplish and might not result in a book anyone would want to read, a kind of encyclopedic history Mm -hmm. of this 50-year-old organization that is incredibly complex with millions of members from start to finish. And so as I thought about how to capture the story of now and what it meant in different moments to different people uh, and distill that story into uh, an account that would be readable and would mean something to people reading it today, I thought, well, what if I focus on people? Because the organization comprised of structures and um, but really now was and still is its people. And so I was interested in finding protagonists who personified the potential of now, who had different ideas about what an organization with an incredibly uh, flexible and loose blueprint when it was formed in 1966 as a vehicle that could advance the interests of all women. Um, Well, women are not all the same, as we know, and they have lots of different ideas about what's best for women and what feminism could be. And so I identified these three women um, that you mentioned who had different ideas about what now would be, but who nonetheless dedicated their lives to it and decided that they were going to work together. I also chose women, these three, this trio, who were mentored by the founding generation. So the... um, the, the mostly middle-aged, mostly middle-class, mostly white women, uh, there were four, and a few men, there were 49 uh, of them in that founding um, moment. Um, 
And those women have achieved, they have received more attention from scholars. So I was interested in the second generation, the, the women who came right after them, who were active in the group from the late 60s until the mid-1980s, uh, because they were the ones who tested whether the idea of an organization representing all women's interests could work. And I wanted to choose three different women who had very disparate identities and backgrounds, and they brought really different expectations for what this feminist organization should be. I also chose three women who are less known to history than they should be to, to symbolize the range of ordinary women who took part. So the three protagonists that the book really hangs on uh, are Eileen Hernandez, who was uh, the daughter of Jamaican immigrants. She was a civil rights and labor activist, and she was one of the first five commissioners on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a federal agency that still exists to police uh, workplace rights and, um, and, and try to, to, to erode workplace discrimination. She was now second president, uh, and she really tried to push the organization to be more inclusive and welcoming, uh, especially to women of color, but also to lesbians. Looking at looking through the archive and trying to think who would um, complement uh, Hernandez, but but brought a different view to the organization, I came across a woman named Patricia Hill Burnett, who was a Republican. She was a former beauty queen. She was Miss Michigan. Uh, and she was also a talented portrait artist and a socialite in Detroit who had a pretty conventional uh, elite white life in a, in a family with four kids until she reached about 50 years old and decided that she was going to reject much of the um, respectability politics that shaped her life and the, the deeply gendered role that she had in her family and her community. And she was going to, to step out of her comfort zone and become a feminist activist. And she also becomes quite uh, deeply involved in the Republican Party. And my third protagonist is uh, a bit younger than the other two. Her name is Mary Jean Collins. She was a working class, well, she is. Uh, she came from a working class background in Milwaukee. She was, um, she's deeply Catholic and went to a small women's college in Milwaukee run by progressive nuns called Alverno College. Uh, she came out of the civil rights movement in Milwaukee and um, had deep ties to the labor movement and did much of her activism in now from Chicago, where she was deeply focused on workplace issues. So this unlikely trio were not personal friends, although they were part of now in the same years. Uh, they were comrades in the movement. And along with millions of other women and their male allies, they did the work of making the movement work. They strategized, they debated, they compromised, uh, they did the hard work of working together. And uh, one of the arguments of the book is that the movement achieved as much as it did, although of course there's a, an unfinished agenda to still, uh, to still focus on, because so many differently situated women decided that they had to work together to apply pressure on the male-dominated structures of American life together and from many angles at once. But focusing on these, these three protagonists also reveals the inherent tensions in the movement and the challenge of trying to work together across really different feminist visions at a moment when the, this organization, especially in their late 1970s, was quite open-ended in, in that you could bring pretty much any feminist concern to it and pursue that concern through now. And sometimes all of those, those concerns or those issues worked together in harmony, and other times they, they were in conflict. And so the book traces some of that action as well.
Wow. Yeah, because I think it's it's also important to recognize that women are not a monolith. And I think that's something that um, comes up, I think, even today in terms Mm -hmm. of how are um, how are people voting? How are people um, responding to X, Y or Z? And so I think that's a very important look at it. So how did you navigate and explore those ideas of the social movements, organizations and those individuals and how they all kind of intersect within that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is another innovation of the book to study uh, the feminism of the 1970s through individuals and organizations and then put it in the broader historical context. Uh, because, of course, organizations are essential to social movements, but these organizations are comprised of individuals who have who are uniquely situated, who have their own perspectives and intersecting identities. And so my book puts these three pieces together, these individuals, organizations, and social movements, um, examining how really different people decided that they needed to work together to build the same organization to advance this social movement that they were all committed to, even if they had really different ideas about what the endpoint of a feminist revolution would be. And here's just one example. An example that's been in the news recently, the Equal Rights Amendment, which was uh, a longtime goal of many feminists, and it passes both houses of Congress in 1972, and then the next step is to get it ratified in the states. The ERA is, um, from, from 1967 on, the ERA is a priority of now, but different women have different ideas about why it's needed and what it would accomplish and where it fits in a feminist agenda. So some members of now, um, I'm thinking of uh, in terms of my three protagonists, um, uh, Patricia Hill Burnett, the Republican, sees the Equal Rights Amendment as perfectly aligned with her uh, commitment to individual rights and to to non-discrimination, to being treated and having her daughters treated the same as a man would be treated and sees the ERA as a very important goal, both practically and symbolically, as she wants to um, sort of shore up her elite status. Uh, but another protagonist in the book, Eileen Hernandez, who is African-American, well, she, she she supports the ERA, she believes in it, but she's always reminding the other women in the movement that it's just one piece of many, many things that need to be done. And for women of color and for working class women um, and for lesbians, pure, pure equal treatment to men, just complete uh, non-distinction between the sexes written into law is not enough to create meaningful equality for the vast majority of women. So while she believes in the ERA and she works for it, she is very critical in the late 1970s when the leaders of now increasingly focus the organization on pursuing that goal above all else. And she actually breaks from now in 1979 when she starts to see mounting evidence that most of the white women in the organization are really just prioritizing the ERA, and they're not um, continue. They're, they're not as committed to um, the broad spectrum of feminist concerns, which for Eileen Hernandez includes welfare rights, housing rights, labor rights, and she sees all of them as of a piece and doesn't see any as um, as more important than the others. You have to have it all. I do want to talk more about um, the research process of your book. But um, along those same lines, um, you do note that now was a driving force behind second wave feminism. And can you describe what you mean by that? Sure. So second wave feminism is a concept that scholars today 
if they use it, they use it with an asterisk because while this concept held meaning at the time that that um, his, the, the, the notion that feminism has uh, feminism's history can be mapped onto waves and peaks and valleys, uh, there's been a lot of scholarship in the past decade or two to show that the wave metaphor leads to some inaccurate conclusions about women's activism. But um, certainly a lot changed for women legally, culturally, politically between the mid-1960s and the early 1980s. And America has been utterly transformed by that movement. So, um, the, you know, the book argues that now was a center, an important center of the movement. And the, the, the women who built it came out of labor unions and they came out of the civil rights movement and they came from colleges and universities and they came out of public service and government. And they one thing that they shared was a commitment to building an enduring institution that would have members that would who would pay dues, that would have local chapters where any 10 women or men or anyone could um, each pay five or ten dollars. That the, the dues rate changed uh, and, and they would be a chapter and they could work on any feminist issue they chose. And so they would benefit from that loose uh, grassroots creativity and uh, be able to work on issues in their communities or any issues they wanted, uh, but also benefit from the connection to the national organization. And uh, in now's most, in what I would define as most, now's most fruitful years, the late 60s to the early 1970s, the organization had something like three dozen national task forces. So you could incubate an idea in your chapter bring it to the national organization, turn that into a task force, and then share your uh, all of your work and your ideas to, with the national organization who could then disseminate it to other chapters. So it was a, a loosely coordinated and freewheeling time when now was working on pretty much any feminist issue you could you could think of. So there were always dissenters from now. Uh, there were and there were always what now was was always contested. In that there were many, many, many examples of women who brought and men who brought to now their specific concerns, wanted that concern to be at the center of what now was. And for a long time, that center was contested. And so there's there were many women of color who who left, who did not see their uh, concerns reflected with the seriousness of purpose that they believe that they deserved. And lesbians fought for a long time to have their issues uh, treated seriously by the national organization and placed at the center of the organization's agenda. But one thing that surprised me in doing the research for this book was just how enduring the organization has been as a center for different groups of women and men to demand inclusion and that over the decades you see many multiple generations of of women of color of lesbians of other women um, from more marginalized with more marginalized identities coming to now and demanding inclusion and and reforming the organization so the which is still here so the organization has uh, its history is full of moments when it was not as inclusive as we might have wanted to have been, but but now is ha, has also reformed itself over the years, and it remains as a vehicle for uh, for feminism in this challenging moment that we're in. So now is a driving force. Um, I mean, it's it's hard, I think, now for, the, for those of us who think about feminism um, to imagine now as radical or as fledgling because it 
over the, the, the almost 60 years that now has existed, it, it seems so permanent. It's such a fixture of the feminist landscape. But when NOW was formed in 1966, the idea that there could be an organization that would um, appeal to and advocate for all women and their male allies was quite radical. And um, NOW was, was out front quite early on, as, as early as 1967, demanding constitutional equality and an end to all abortion restrictions. So now held down a center that other groups could um, could splinter off from, could work together with in tandem and intention. Um, radical feminist groups define themselves against now, um, sometimes sometimes in quite productive ways because there were there were radical, more radical groups in the late '60s and early '70s um, making demands that to many seemed quite extreme which created space where some of the stuff that now was asking for could seem more um, mainstream. Yeah, because I think it's it's having that counter, you know, that centrality, that counterpoint, and then how are other people responding, as you said, some dissenters within are, are the are questioning whether those concerns are being addressed. And so how can it be applied in different ways? And the, um, you know, the National Black Feminist Organization mm-hmm. um, emerges, uh, Beside now in the early 70s, and some of the its founders are, are folks who have dissented from now, um, saying that you know this organization is not as inclusive as we would like it to be. We need to focus on you know the issues that that, that the specific issues that we see as the most important. But the NBFO and now do work together in collaborative mm-hmm. ways, and those women, the women in the NBFO, do some of them are patient with the white the white women in now and um, continue to educate them and remind them that feminism, if it's going to be for all women, it needs to be inclusive. Absolutely. So what was the research process of this book like? Exhaustive and creative. <laughs> so I really wanted the book to work on four different levels at once, and actually five levels if you count the broader context. So it, it works on the level of individuals. So I look um, deeply at the lives of the three women who are at the center of the book, um, as well as the lives of the women around them. Uh, now worked at the local level. So I, I take you um, through the, the protagonist's eyes, through their local chapters and how they built them in San Francisco, Chicago, and Detroit, which are the three cities where um, the protagonists were doing their work, now was national. So I follow the women into their national leadership in the organization. And now was also international. Uh, there was a, a brief moment in the early 70s when now had uh, an international program, which doesn't, it, it kind of goes away by the end of the decade, although there now is international in interesting ways by the 1990s. So the book works on those four levels at once. I had to have a, a sense of the organization itself, um, its structure, how it worked, how its uh, mechanisms changed over the years, uh, as well as its leaders to convey a sense of sort of what it was at any given time. But the details of these women's lives are also critical to the story because experiences in their personal lives brought them to feminist activism in surprising ways, I would say, for all three of the protagonists of the book. Um, And then that activism changed their lives and completely reset their perspectives. And so, of course, I also wanted to put them in context to explain what their lives were like, what it was like to be... um, each of them to, 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 to exist in, in America from each of their perspectives, uh, their specific uh, race and class and gender perspectives uh, from the 19, the mid-20th century up to the present. 
Um, so uh, I read diaries, letters, local newspapers, national newspapers, meeting minutes, and oral history interviews. I also conducted my own interviews uh, to really give the reader a sense of what it was like to be there. But I also wanted to build up the perspectives and incorporate the perspectives of the people around them. So um, I did a lot of of reading and sleuthing to find the right sources. I feel like history does involve a lot of sleuthing, right? (laughs) Yes. You have to really enjoy the sleuthing if you want to be a professional historian. But fortunately, I do. That's great. What are some historical misconceptions about now? And you kind of touched on this a little bit. But what were some things that surprised you while researching and writing the book? So one dominant metaphor of, quote unquote, second wave feminism is that feminists were generally either radical or illiberal. And liberal feminists accepted the institutions that structure American life basically as they are. They just want a seat at the table. They just want a chance to uh, to compete, uh, an equal chance to to be part of the full the full spectrum of um, of American life. By contrast, radical feminists uh, are defined as wanting to strip American society kind of down to the studs and start again. So one way that now is is positioned in the historical literature is as the anchor of liberal feminism with all the with other groups, especially self-described radical groups, um, positioned against now, sort of in in um, intention with now. And what I found when I started, looking in the archive and trying to understand what now was, who was part of now uh, with an open mind, I saw that while now certainly took some positions that we might consider liberal, uh, it was not only that, and that now was many things at once, that now was a site of feminist action and conflict and debate. It was not a static thing that um, other groups were just constantly railing against. And I'll say that much of what now called for in its 1966 statement of purpose, uh, its sort of founding document uh, from egalitarian marriages to subsidized childcare to a society that affirms the rights and recognizes the humanity of women of all identity, identities, much of that remains to be achieved. So, I mean, some scholars have understood now by freezing it in time in its founding moment as a group of relatively well-to-do, mostly middle-class, mostly white women dedicated to incremental change. And I should mention that now was never that, that some of its founders were quite radical in their politics and outlook. Uh, Labor leaders like Min Matheson uh, or attorney and civil rights activist Polly Murray um, who who hails from right right here in Orange County. Um, so now was always contested, but it also changed dramatically over the years. And historical accounts that freeze it at its founding moment when it um, you know called for equal workplace rights and the ERA and abortion rights, which were, were radical demands at the time, um, it had an open ended mission, uh, advocating for all women. However, diverse women defined that. And it was also porous that when other social movement groups folded, like radical groups, um, most of them didn't didn't last for years and years. Many of those members came to now because now was 
visible now was something you could do for yourself. If there wasn't a chapter, you could form it and you could steer that chapter to work on whatever issues you and your friends and allies found uh, important. So now was never just one thing. It was a living and a changing thing. Um, and each successive feminist generation has found value in its enduring structures and its federated arrangement uh, with these independent local chapters rooting in rooted in communities that were loosely coordinated at a national level. Um, and I, I guess one more point I would make about misconceptions has to do with identity. Uh, and specifically, now is um, is often remembered as a middle class white women's organization, uh, middle class white straight women's organizations. And scholars who have written about now's history have focused a lot on the fights and the departures. Um, and there were many. Uh, there were bitter fights about how to integrate the concerns of women of color and lesbians. Um, and my book certainly recounts those. I don't shy away from talking about, you know, the, the many moments when women who had marginalized identities did not feel fully welcome in now and they decided to leave or they stayed and tried to reform the organization. But certainly the book makes the point that successive generations of diverse women have come to now, have believed in uh, or have been, have been committed to the idea that women are going to have to work together across their differences if they want to beat back male supremacy and make American life more fair. And in fact, that's how they achieved many of the rights we now take for granted, many of the rights which we now see uh, threatened or slipping away. And so the book, um, it, it does both of these things at once. It, it, it spotlights how difficult this work was, um, and but also how necessary it was. Yeah, I think with your note about it, um, both the history, it's early history and that snapshot of time, but then it's open-ended mission. I like the way that you're, uh, you've framed that. It really does show how it resonates today and how a lot of that work and that not just the history of it, but its evolution. Your faculty fellowship focused on this research, of course. Can you talk about your experience in the program? Yes, I had a wonderful experience. We were all online at that time. Um, this was the spring of 2021, as you mentioned, so really in the thick of um, some of the worst moments of the pandemic. Um, so it was, of course, wonderful to be uh, relieved from my teaching duties, although I do love our students and I miss them when I'm not teaching. It was great to have a semester to just focus on my work, but uh, I was so delighted that the fellowship offered this community. So we were, as I mentioned, online meeting on Zoom on Wednesday afternoons, led by the wonderful American Studies professor Tim Marr. Um, so we didn't have the the lunches I've heard so much about. So I'm hoping to to, to be back in the faculty fellowship program someday to enjoy those lunches. Um, but it was a feast of intellectual life, such a supportive conversation that I looked forward to each week. Uh, it was so valuable to read the work and receive feedback from scholars across the university and um, many of their, their my, my fellow fellows' comments and ideas and insights uh, I integrated into the manuscript, which helped make it much stronger. So um, we were because we were online, you know, you see everybody in their little box uh, on the screen. But it's it's been such a pleasure to encounter my fellow fellows in real life. We just saw Claudia Yagubi in the in 
uh, lobby as we were coming up to record this podcast. And I think that's the first time I've, I've seen her in person. Oh, wow. uh, so it's really fun to um, – it feels like a second discovery, a uh, second moment of discovery where the first moment was meeting everyone and uh, talking about our work and our research process and what was on our minds and um, – having those those intimate connections and then um, to see them in person on campus as things have opened back up and we're we're all here uh, teaching and studying um, has just been wonderful. So um, I'm really delighted that the the institute is here and um, it's really doing a lot to create community on our campus and uh, contribute to the intellectual life. I really do love hearing about how that community is born um, and just running into folks, you know, across campus. And so I, I think that's definitely a hope of the Institute, too, in kind of keeping those connections going and that community growing. And it's also was fun to see and surprising to see the connections across our work, right? I always, mm. I'm, I'm always excited to see who is in the next year's uh, two groups of, of faculty fellows. And the Institute always does a great job of choosing scholars from across the university from all different ranks who are working on very different projects. And yet, through our conversations in the semester when I was a faculty fellow here, I, it became clear that there were so many connections that wouldn't have been obvious from a, just a, a brief glance at the titles of our project. But through conversation, we, we I think, helped each other see um, just different ways we could we could strengthen our own projects, but also um, help each other with with that with that work. So um, yeah, it's a wonderful program, and I'm glad That's it's awesome. still here. Yeah. Um, so as we wrap up for our final question, it's something that we ask all of our guests: What is a book that has changed your life? And I can broaden that to include any creative piece or anything that speaks to you in that way. Well, I'm happy to mention a book. Uh, the first book that comes to mind is by the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign historian Leslie Reagan, whose 1996 book uh, titled When Abortion Was a Crime, Women, Medicine, and Law in the United States, 1867 to 1973, uh, I first encountered as an undergraduate, and it just blew my mind. The research that she did uh, in terms of women's, ordinary women's lives and medical practices, and to as a, as a, legal, as a fellow legal historian, uh, I was amazed to see the different levels at which the law worked. Um, the book starts in 1867 when abortion was illegal across the United States and uh, spans the full century until the Roe v. Wade opinion um, made abortion a constitutional right or asserted that abortion was a constitutional right in 1973. And the book um, takes such care with individual women and their lives and reveals you know, how important our rights are and what people do when they don't have their rights protected. And um, it's a cautionary tale, and it's also an inspiration. And um, I believe it was just reissued. It's um, it's a classic by now, but um, everyone should read it who's interested in those questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention or talk about before you, before um, we sign off? I don't think so. This was a great interview. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking with me today. Of course. Thank you so much for sharing, and we're glad to have you back. Thank you for listening to the Institute Podcast. Listen to other and upcoming episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit our website, iah.unc.edu, to find past episodes and transcripts. 
You can also learn more about our upcoming events, programs, grants, and leadership opportunities for UNC Chapel Hill faculty, and read stories that feature our Arts and Humanities fellows. Thank you for joining us.